0: Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee
1: Eight hundred four four two seven zero four three.
0: Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is the Buck Sexton Show.
2: Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Lovely Tuesday, March 7th with you all now. Um, If you want to call in, 888-900-3393. Also, wanted to let you know that there is a big Team Buck announcement that will be coming tomorrow about uh, the future of the Freedom Hut. So I'll definitely want you to please tune in for that. And uh, there's going to be a whole lot for us to be talking about uh, but first, on to the news. I didn't get a chance yesterday because it, it really broke uh, after the show or towards the very end of the show to get into the, the travel ban. This is a fascinating exercise in Orwellian language or rather the, the use of politics through the choice of language, the implementation of politics through language choice. So whether you call this a, an executive order or you call it a Muslim ban, whether you call this a restriction on travel, or you call this a travel ban, is almost entirely and purely a function of where you are in the political spectrum. And you can see this from the different news outlets and the way they write about this and how they cover it. You got the New York Times headline on this was Trump issues a travel ban altered to stand up in court. And then the Wall Street Journal, which is on the right, of course, president, although not very pro-Trump in a number of respects and certainly not on immigration, the Wall Street Journal writes, President Trump signs revised executive order restricting travel to the U.S. So it's is it a travel restriction or is this a travel ban or a Muslim ban? Um, this is all fascinating to me because the way this is played out is, is very predictable, meaning that the media has done everything they can to polarize this and to make this um, not an exercise in national security, but an exercise in virtue signaling, an exercise in, well, if you're a good person, you want to help refugees and you are not going to be in favor of Trump's travel ban here. If you're a bad person, you're going to uh, want to help Trump. Now, a few things to note here about this, this ban and, and the... or Sorry, see? I, it, even, it happens. You read travel ban or you read Muslim ban enough, and you start to use the language that they want you to use. Uh, and already, of course, the New York Times, Trump's new Muslim ban is still illegal, is the editorial they had on the front page yesterday. Uh, But I let me get into the changes here. So as you know, this went through the courts and it was there was a a ban put on the ban, a stay put on the ban by three judges in the Ninth Circuit out west in the Court of Appeals, Ninth Circuit. And then there was also, there were a number of other judges who ruled on this, including a federal judge in Boston who said, look, I don't like this, but it's totally within the executive branch's purview to do it. Then there was Judge Brinkema in Virginia, and I've been saying this, certainly on Buck Saxon with America Now, the night show, I've been mentioning how that Brinkema ruling was much more important than people realized. We had a little bit of travel ban coverage fatigue, and the Brinkema ruling in Virginia comes out, and it says, just explicitly, Trump This is Trump doesn't like Muslims because of what he said on the campaign. This is about discriminating against Muslims. It's a violation of the First Amendment. Can't, can't be allowed to stand. So... And that was based not on anything in the law, but on the judge's perception of Trump based on campaign rhetoric and other statements out there that had nothing to do with the text of the law. So while this is being tailored to address the concerns of the Ninth Circuit panel, the three-judge panel in the Ninth Circuit, understand that there will still be enormous progressive resistance to it. The Democrats are still going to say that it's terrible and racist and unnecessary. And the judges will find, I think, some ground they're going to force this as an issue of religious discrimination Um, and what we'll eventually get into is some version of a disparate impact argument disparate impact being that even if you say even if you have a law that is not on its face uh, discriminatory if the effect is discriminatory then the law should be null and void it's a terrible legal uh terrible it is uh, really uh, mindless and undermines the rule of law entirely uh, because there are any number of crimes you could point to that will have a disparate impact. You know, you could say there's gender discrimination in sexual assault law. Um, Of of course, they do say that and then it's against women. But I mean, there's gender discrimination in terms of who's prosecuted because a vast majority of uh, sexual assault uh, perpetrators are men. So there's a disparate impact. Well, that's just because more men are committing sexual assault overall. It's not because the, there's a gender bias in the law. It's just the law says you can't assault somebody sexually, and more men do that than women overall. So you can see that this this would have... And, and once you apply this to all kinds of different laws, you'll see that there is, there's endless meddling that the left can do, the ACLU and others can do on this, and so they like it. But it's really a nonsensical legal doctrine uh, because it, it then just says... We don't like we don't like what this says about a certain group or we don't like the outcome of having this otherwise sensible law in place. So therefore, we want to undermine the whole basis of the law. And with terrorism laws, of course, uh, specifically anything that's intended to address. This is where the profiling issue with terrorists comes up and others. Yeah, there's going to be more Muslims affected by this than non-Muslims. That's because a disproportionate amount of Muslims commit acts of international and jihad. I mean, of course, jihadist terror. Uh, international terrorism, meaning terrorist acts all over the world, uh, including here at home in America. It's just disproportionately Muslim. doesn't mean it's entirely Muslim and certainly doesn't mean all Muslims are bad or do this stuff. And that we have to keep running over those same talking points actually just shows you the power of the left to influence the discussion because it's such a huge leap to say, we want to focus on radical Islamic terrorism and how to stop it to you hate all Muslims. That to constantly feel like you have to say, well, I'm not saying Muslims are bad. I'm just saying we want to stop the very small subset of Muslims that engage in this violent, destabilizing, and strategically threatening to our existence behavior. That you have to always sort of stop with the preface is is in and of itself evidence of the inroads that the left has made into controlling this discussion before you've even had it, which I think is a very, uh, very troubling. So. Moving back to this uh, moving back to this piece. So Trump, the executive order, takes Iraq off the list, and they say it's because the Iraqi government, well, first, we have a lot of allies in Iraq. We're fighting ISIS there. Uh, we've got Iraqi interpreters and others that were affected by the initial ban. So this takes them off the list. So th- th- you don't have to worry about them anymore. So now it's just six countries, uh, Iran, Libya, Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, Syria. I did that from memory. I think I got them all. Nice work, Buck. And it is not permanent for any of them, including Syria. That's a change. It is a um, limitation for one hundred or sorry, for uh, ninety days, but exempts travelers who already hold valid visas. Um, and there are other changes to this as well. As I said, Syrians are not permanently banned. The new order suspends the admission of refugees to the US for 120 days, caps the annual total admission of refugees at fifty thousand no refugees for 120 days, no more than 50,000 refugees overall. Uh, And you just go through this. And and what they did is they made a good faith effort to address the concerns that were established in the judicial rulings that held this was a due process violation or uh, really a violation in in a number of ways, but due process being the most prominent one of the Ninth Circuit's version of these events. Now we see, now we're going to see what the response to this of course is and they're already the the mechanisms are are, have been mobilized to thwart this via lawsuits you know all special interest groups the the aclu calls this a new muslim ban so it's just a new version of a muslim ban it's not a muslim ban it even pull it even pulls out of the original text the protections that were intended in there for christians largely not entirely saying that if you're a religious minority in a country you will be prioritized for the purposes of uh, refugee status they didn't even like that so they they got rid of that that's no longer a part of this um, because they didn't want it to seem like they were they didn't want to give the courts who are of course going to look at this and i I believe we'll challenge this one as well uh, because it's already been established trump hates muslims the courts believe Therefore, anything he does that affects Muslims is born of bigotry, not of trying to protect our national security. That's not an exaggeration. That's what some courts have uh, more or less officially stated as their positions on this. So we'll have to see how they try to overturn this or how the challenges are, are worded. Um, but this time around, what I think people will see, and this is what I find to be the most politically the most uh, central theme with all of this, is that the pro- progressive Democrat left in this country is going to show that once again they're willing to subvert the law to be lawless, to go to the mat, to go all in for non-U.S. citizen uh, Muslim countries? That's for non-U.S. citizens from Muslim countries. The left will go to the mat, and they will they will do damage to our legal system they will do damage to the authority of the executive branch they will do damage in a number of ways because they're so set on extending themselves for the for muslim non-citizens which you know they, they don't seem to extend this same desire to help people from any number of other countries but when it comes to muslim non-citizens or foreign non-citizen uh, muslims the left has a very uh, a very obvious soft spot. And that soft spot is so profound that they are willing to do things that are harmful to the system of law we have in place that is there to protect all Americans. Uh, they're willing to undermine and uh, belittle and demean our, our, our current administration, the president of this country. Yes, he is their president too, whether they like it or not. And they might, and this is where I wanted to transition to next, also be willing to endanger our security. You see, if I sat down with a lawyer, say from the ACLU, and he said that this is an issue of what is right for non-citizens, which I have to say, non-citizens, in my opinion, have no right to travel to America. They come to America at our with our approval, with the approval of the American government and representative of as representatives of the people in this country. No no foreigner has a right to come to America. I do not believe that that is the case. I I think the ACLU and other leftist groups and the Democrat Party certainly do seem to believe that. But I start from that premise, which I suppose they reject, but then I'd like to know, what other rights do non-citizens have in this country? Do non-citizens have a right to welfare? Do non-citizens have a right to Medicaid? Do non-citizens have a right to vote, I mean, if America affects the rest of the world so much, maybe everybody should get to vote. Anyone who wants to vote in the American election should. Now, I know they'd say, oh, Buck, that's ridiculous. You're... But why? Based on their premise that, that you have a right as a as a Yemeni uh, would-be visitor to this country, for example, you have a right to come here and, and, and any effort to slow you down or tell you that you can't come for a while is born of bigotry. Indonesian Muslims Saudi Muslims gonna I mean, go down the list Moroccan Muslims they can all come here no problem with no change at least based on what Trump has done but we're told that this is a Muslim ban this is obviously sloppy on their part but I don't even think it's sloppy I think it's intentionally dishonest so it's not that they're making a mistake it's that they don't care that a mistake is being made there's a difference there and uh, they extend rights to non-citizens another part of this that I think deserves our tension is many on the left, clearly many Democrats seem to believe that if we if we are going to be an, a decent and just people in this country, we need to be willing to take in non-citizens at the risk of the lives and safety and security of. US citizens. And this is what they can't understand. This is what they don't teach at you know, Johns Hopkins International School of Advanced, you know, this is a School of Advanced International Studies, SICE. They don't teach us at SIPA, Columbia University School of International Public Affairs. They don't teach us at Georgetown's Walsh School of Foreign Service. They don't teach us at Foggy Bottom 101 when you're learning to become a State Department office. No, no. This is what they don't teach you. But a lot of Americans just know instinctually this is how they feel, and it's the following. If not allowing... Uh, thousands of refugees from syria to come to america as as much as we sympathize with syrian refugees who have a lot of other places that they have gone and can go by the way not america is not the only place that we take in a million people legally a year every year in this country we need to stop letting ourselves be bullied into thinking that we're not already by far the most generous country in the world when it comes to making more permanent residents and even making more citizens no one else even comes close but the truth here is that the Democrat party and the left seems willing to say that we have such an obligation to take in refugees from Syria, for example, that if it means that there's a mass casualty attack on U.S. soil, either directed by or inspired by the Islamic State, we will take that risk. And Americans on the other side of the spectrum, conservatives, the right, Traditionalists, you know, I don't know, you go to the Republicans. They hear this and they say, "No, I'm sorry, we are not in some sort of charitable suicide pact here. We do not have to allow in thousands of refugees, even if there's a a an uncomfortable likelihood of a terror attack from bringing in thousands and thousands of refugees. We have a right as a country, as a sovereign nation, to say no." That's a risk we just do not want to take. And this is what the left doesn't understand. This is where it all falls apart for them. This is where the, 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 the divide is really exposed. Because they think that it is racist and wrong and mean for the American people to make a decision that privileges their security and their survival over humanitarian concerns. That's what this, a lot of this really just boils down to that. Uh, the other stuff about, oh, uh, due process ability for people to come here. That's all just, that's all noise. It's that they do not believe that the calculation should be in favor of U.S. citizen security. Not. I'm not talking about a tie goes to the runner situation. I'm talking about, you know, if it's one in a hundred chance that one of these Syrian refugees could uh, or would go shoot up a mall, and we don't have to bring them in i think a lot of americans are like you know what i i don't want to take that risk i don't care we've already got plenty of people from all over the world here we take in plenty year in year out we don't need the additional risk given what's happening with the islamic state given what's ha- so you have that but by the way the way this will be challenged perhaps in court i think will be that it's racist that's part one and part two it doesn't work it's not effective so now you've got democrats that are more or less saying our judgment if that happens Our judgment is more important on this matter than the commander-in-chiefs. And, oh, by the way, also, we get to determine what is effective national security policy in the courts, not the executive branch. Which really should force a constitutional crisis, or it might. Um, It will create one, I believe. All right. Got to hit a break here, team. Much more coming. Uh, 888-900-3393. I'll be right back.
1: Let your voice be heard. Hello. 888-900-3393. The Bucks Action Show.
2: Team, welcome back. Our sponsor this hour is silencershop.com. Silencer Shop is simply the place to go, the number one spot for you to go find a silencer for your firearm. They've got all the top brands. They have fantastic prices. In fact, your local dealer will set the price and make the profit. So Silencer Shop is also excellent at the paperwork aspects of all this. They'll make sure that you get through that process as quickly as possible. And once you're through and clear to get a silencer, I'm telling you, you're going to love it. It's a fantastic accessory for your firearm, and Silencer Shop is simply the place to go. They've got a great selection, great prices, excellent customer service. So once you've tried it out, you're going to be like, I wish i gotten a silencer years ago. Trust me. Go to silencershop.com. Again, that is silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. Um, Also, please uh, download my podcast for Buck Saxon with America Now. Go on iTunes. Type in Buck Saxon with America Now. You can click subscribe. That is the night show, the nationally syndicated show, 6 to 9 Eastern. Uh, do tune in tonight live if you can, but certainly all of you listening, Team Buck, I ask, I humbly request you subscribe to that podcast. And uh, more info and details on all that coming up soon. i uh, got to hit a break here. I'll
0: be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show.
2: All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Continuing our discussion of security, national security, terrorism, and uh, immigration policy. Uh, more specifically, immigration policy related to Trump's executive order and the so-called travel ban or Muslim ban or you know whatever it is that we are uh, being told to call it today. Here's Something very significant has happened here um, in the way that information is given to us. In the previous administration, well, first let me give you the information and then I'll get into why I think this is so significant. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Pardon me for that, team. Here's a story from Fox News yesterday. Hundreds of people admitted to the United States as refugees are the subjects of FBI counterterrorism investigations involving ISIS, including some individuals from countries cited on President Trump's Revised travel ban. Trump's order, which was announced late Monday morning, temporarily bans travel to those with valid visas. Blah, blah, you know about that. Nearly a third, that's <laughs> very professional, Buck, blah, 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 you know about that. Nearly a third of the 1,000 FBI domestic terrorism cases, 300 in total, involve those admitted to the U.S. as refugees, a Department of Homeland Security official said Monday. That number was confirmed later in the day by Attorney General Jeff Sessions during a news conference. Officials said some of the 300 came to infiltrate the U.S., while others were radicalized once they were in the country. Uh, okay, so um, isn't that interesting? Let me just say that this is an instance where we see that this information about the FBI and its counterterrorism investigations which we should be allowed to know because the American people should be informed and then vote for people and and support people in power who make the decisions that reflect their values and and their own judgment on these matters. But we have to be informed about what's going on. The reality, I think, quite clearly in all this is that uh, if this were still the Obama administration, we wouldn't we wouldn't know about any of this. We wouldn't be we wouldn't be told about any of this. We we wouldn't know those numbers that 300 about a third of all terrorism cases in the United States under investigation right now involve refugees. Um involve those admitted to the US as refugees is the specific language used here. So okay, now let's let's unpack this for a minute. Oh, wait, sorry. <laughs> Again jumping around. What I wanted to make sure we all note is that that's a huge difference, by the way, that we have access to that information now. I'm telling you, if this were Obama, we would not know that. We would not be told that because it's not useful to the administration narrative. Now we get to know. Now we get to know when we talk about illegal immigrants and the illegal immigrant communities. We're going to be told, what is the, what is the reality of criminality? Because the government's going to start counting and they're going to start telling us, that, which they have not wanted to do up to this point. And I think any rational, reasonable person might be willing to stand up for a second and ask, "Well, why is that? Why do they not want to tell us? Why do we not get to have a uh, honest and forthright conversation about that?" You know, if the government's lying to us, there's usually a reason for it. So, that is a very important uh, and very big change. I just wanted to note that. Um, and and then when you move on from there, I know what the left would say in response to this. or At least I think I know. And I probably know they would say, well, um, there's no just because they're an investigation doesn't mean that they've been involved in an attack. And the response to that and see, this is where this and this is why people don't trust. Don't trust the media on this stuff. Don't believe them. Don't want to hear about it. The response to this would be, OK, hold on a second. So you're telling me that because there's not a, an attack in this. Population of refugees that's currently under investigation. Never mind previous attacks that involved either refugees or the children of refugees. Ie. Boston Marathon bomber, Pulse nightclub shooter. Those are first generation uh, radicalized Americans, but they radicalized from refugee uh, with refugee parents. And you know, there's there there are we're allowed to look at that connection and say, well, hold on a second. I mean, is this is there a a correlation between these uh, situations? All right. But if they're going to tell us that because there's no specific terror attack that has happened in this population, we shouldn't look at it. We also get to say, well, we don't want to spend even more resources, our very overwhelmed counterterrorism, especially counterterrorism surveillance resources chasing around people that should be so thankful to be in this country in the first place. You see, refugees, this is what the left doesn't understand. Refugees should be the most trusted Population in this country, in terms of security and and uh, you know, because they should be so thoroughly vetted on the one hand, and they should be so grateful to be here. These are people that they're you know look there are a lot of Americans and they intend you know, to vote Democrat who are born in this country. They have U.S. citizenship. They don't really they don't really think it's that big a deal. They don't really care. They don't feel grateful. Some of the best Americans I've met are those who were taken in uh, taken in by this country fleeing either their families or they themselves fleeing a totalitarian regime because they really love and appreciate this place you know you, you speak to former uh, people who lived in former communist states or you speak to people who fled the Khmer Rouge you in Cambodia you speak to people who and and they 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 talk about freedom and they they tear up i mean they understand what this means They understand rule of law. They understand legal immigration. They understand an orderly process. And they also understand the debt of gratitude that they have to this country and its people. That we would be admitting refugees and there would be any concerns that they are involved in terrorism is completely unacceptable and is a scandal. And that the media would turn around and say to us, oh, well, maybe this is just signs of Islamophobia No, I don't think the FBI is just bigoted, and so they're tracking refugees who happen to be Muslim all over the country. By the way, I mean, if we're talking about terrorism investigations, does anyone want to take a guess? I mean, this would be the really interesting data. Of the 300 uh, immigration, uh, or sorry, 300 refugee cases that currently are under surveillance by the FBI, would anyone want to guess what percentage of them were Muslim? I mean, I'm just putting it out there. I don't know, but I think we all know that it's probably pretty high, um, which uh, now uh, you know what? And I'm not going to do the whole that doesn't mean all Muslim, you know, because we all know that. All right. But it does mean that uh, clearly there is more than Islamophobia at work here, because it's not like they're just following Muslims at random. There are some Muslim refugees that they have concerns over. Um, anyway. So you look at this, this is very interesting information for them. Of course, the administration released it right with this executive order to bolster its case, but unless you think that they're lying and the FBI is lying, um, then we should know this. This is very relevant information for us given the reality of this whole process and the procedures that they're trying to put in place. Um, But it, it will not budge the left one bit on this. They think that, America is, or that the Republican Party and the Donald Trump administration is a bunch of racists, uh, it's bad people, they don't like Muslims, that's all this is about, it's not about safety and security, and they will ignore this data, they'll ignore these numbers. It'll change the discussion with them, not one bit. And we'll hear from them, oh well there's never been a refugee involved in terrorism, false. Then you'll do a quick Google search, because you'll see people that have big platforms, pay a lot of money, fancy media people, and you'll see them and they'll say, Okay, well, fine. There have been a couple of investig- there have been a couple of arrests of, of people involved in this stuff, but not that many. And you say, well, there should be zero. Uh, the number of people overall in this country who are involved in ter- in, in lethal terrorist plotting is infinitesimal. When you consider we have three hundred twenty million people in this country. But the number of Muslim refugees that have come close to terrorism, have been involved in terrorism. And by the way, once you start counting disrupted plots, which I always tell you, you have to count the disrupted plots. Because that's like saying, well, just because they don't kill a bunch of people, they're not a threat. Well, no, if, if good work by the FBI or DHS or whomever prevents a terrorist attack from happening, doesn't mean the threat isn't very real. It just means we got lucky and there was good work done. And it also should be taken into account, just as I said, that the resources that are being brought to bear to surveil these 300 people, these 300 refugees, the FBI's got to look at those res- we, we We shouldn't have to spend those resources. And the resources that we spend on TSA, airport security, and all these other things that are out there currently, where we're just writing, the taxpayers writing big checks, spending a whole lot of money because we're trying to stop jihadist terrorism from happening in this country we shouldn't have to spend that money now i know that you know saying we shouldn't have to doesn't mean anything because we're going to have to for a while but i do think it is worth pointing out that we don't need to add to that tab by bringing people that are going to be a concern and you know this is there is a there's decades of programming, of of psychological programming, and really psychological warfare the left has been waging against the American people, with regard to the immigration discussion overall, and with regard to terrorism, and we're finally confronting it in a way that is meaningful. And on the issue of terrorism specifically, you know, they're, they're, they've burned so much credibility. The same way that you can't, that the left can't just say, "Oh, trust us, we're journalists," because no person who pays attention would accept that explanation anymore. Uh, on issues related to terrorism and jihadism, you can't trust them there either. You can't trust them. They've been, they've been denying the obvious on this and downplaying and engaged in all of this uh, whiny social justice victimology on behalf of the global Muslim community for so many years, and we're all so sick of it. And it's, it's become, I think, finally clear to most Americans... Not even just Republicans. I mean, most Americans. I mean, a strong majority of Americans see that when CNN and, and you know and MSNBC and NBC and these other news outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, when in the when the immediate aftermath of a terrorist attack, they say, let's not jump to conclusions. And then their next breath, about who did it, of course, and what their motivations are, even though we've got like a video of a guy running around yelling Allahu Akbar with a scimitar in his hand and an AK-47 in the other, shooting people saying, which one of you is Christian? I want to kill them in the name of Allah. It's like, whoa, let's not jump to any conclusions here, America. That's what they say. And then the next thing is you know, they'll write, they'll run stories about how the real threat is Islamophobia and there'll be some report of a woman somewhere in the country who says that she was stared at rudely because she was wearing a hijab and this is now you know and, and if it's more than that by the way if it's that someone actually laid hands on her or said something mean to a, a Muslim guy and, and pushed him or something there's a very good chance we find out that it's false and after we find out it's false the media either loses interest in it entirely that it's a hoax, hate crime the media loses interest in it entirely or uh, they say that well this is just evidence of how the vulnerability that muslim americans feel is so profound that they feel the obli- they feel the need to make up these stories to raise awareness so that they're just running in this unreality this non-reality loop this loop of of this bizarro alternate universe that they get to live in where they it doesn't matter what the facts are they're always right and that's just what they do um but on this investigation of the refugees a very interesting very interesting piece very interesting stories Team, we are going to hit a break here. 888 900 3393. I'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. Buck Sexton will be right back.
0: The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Welcome back, Team. I know everybody wants to get to the bottom of the Trump allegation about wiretapping and Obama and the administration. I certainly do. And I do I also really appreciate the work of Judicial Watch in trying to use FOIA and, and lawsuits to get access to information that the government generally uh, is slow to or just straight up doesn't want to uh, share with us. Um, but and I, and I know Judicial Watch has sued CIA, DOJ, and Treasury for records relating to the uh, Flynn leaks, but I doubt they're going to get anything here. The real exception to FOIA uh, is national security. And what's so interesting about the way this whole discussion about Trump and Obama and the leaks and all the rest of it, um, all of it comes together under... The broad, the areas of broad discretion that the government has when it comes specifically to investigating national security issues, right? when it comes to national security, you all of a sudden get into a place where the government is able to say, "Sorry, FOIA doesn't apply." You know, "Sorry, don't want to hear what your concerns are here." I mean, there's any any number of of, of issues that you know. I, I think as we as we see it, continue to play out. You get a real understanding that, oh, okay, they can hide behind the national security exception. And also, when it comes to possible wiretapping or Pfizer or any of those other issues that we spent a lot of time on the last couple of days and has been dominating the news cycle, the the former Commander-in-Chief Obama has a tremendous amount of latitude and discretion. So I just want to, for those of us who want answers, and I want answers, and look, if the answers look bad for Trump, I'll be... I'll be upset, and I'll we'll talk about what that means and what we do about that, but I doubt they will be because why would the New York Times be reporting on a counterintelligence investigation, which seems to be code word for FISA or, you know, alluding to FISA, in January, no one says a word about it, but it looks bad for Trump and his people, and now we're being told, oh, well, that was just, that was reporting from multiple U.S. officials that was all a lie? I don't buy it. But efforts to use FOIA, just to bring us back here to the initial, uh, initial news peg, efforts to use FOIA to get to the bottom of this, it's worth doing, and we got you know, you got to have people out there that are trying, but this is going to get hidden deep, deep, deep in the so-called uh, deep state, my friends. All right, hitting a break here. I'll
1: be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Freedom across the nation. This is
1: the Buck Sexton Show.
2: Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you. We're joined by our friend Matt Welch. He is the editor in chief of Reason Magazine. Mr. Welch, great to have you.
1: Thank you very much. I'm editor at large now, Buck, owing to the size of my uh, waistband. Not editor in chief. Pa-
2: P- pardon me, pardon me, editor, editor at large. At
1: large. Yes. What does that? What does that?
2: Does that just mean that you're like you're so revered in the institution that you get to go and hang out on the beach and like file file? You know, when you feel like filing, is that what? Because that sounds good. I want to get editor at large status.
1: Uh, what it does it means I don't spend time uh, managing people anymore, uh, and I don't uh, take part in uh, conference calls. So it's pretty sweet.
2: That's awesome. This is like being a professor on sabbatical or something. All the benefits of tenure, but none of the drawbacks. Exciting well, there's
1: stuff. a little bit of an expectation that I, uh, you know, uh, go on the Buck Sexton show and I get out there in the world and that I write. I've got to increase right, the other course. aspects to justify this, of course.
2: Right. You're 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 a product guy. You know, I, I get it. You know, you got you got to be creating content out there. Absolutely. Which is what we're doing right now, by the way. And yes. with that in mind, let me ask you about some stuff that is happening in the world bunch of things i kind of want the the welchian uh... the in touch on on all of them uh... if you're willing first yeah. your 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 take on the uh... whole trump wiretap allegation situation media reporting on it and all that all that jazz uh...
1: you know his uh, uh, early morning uh... tweets and the fact that it's driven the uh, discussion for four or five days just remind us that we have Kind of an insane presidency on our hands. Let's let's let's, let's like let's keep it real for a second here. He said this stuff without talking to anybody, and he based it on a Breitbart article that was based on a louise Mensch article that was anti-Trump. What the hell is he even talking about? And then everyone's sort of like uh, having to to say, "Well, you know, he does have access to information after all, even though he didn't base it here." Just craziness. Uh, at some point, it's just nuttiness, and he's fighting. I mean, the, the meta picture as you know, is well, that he went into office calling CIA a bunch of Nazis, <laughs> and uh, and he thinks that he can sort of get out in front of the future leaks, whatever they may contain, and they might just be, you know, uh, penny-ante stuff. I, I mean, I think a lot of this, these Russia leaks, uh, I mean, what they've exposed more than anything else is that Trump world people uh, have been, there's a pattern of dissembling and occasionally lying about contacts that don't, on the surface, look like they're that big of a deal. You know, whatever Sessions did with the Russian ambassador, unless there's going to be a leak in a transcript soon, which I presume there probably will be, uh, it doesn't look like that big of a deal, so why not just kind of cough it up and move on? Um, that is much more of a big deal that, to me so far, uh, the, the way that they dealt with it, than the underlying conduct. So uh, he's uh it, it we are in this just bizarre bizarro world thing right now and democrats are going way over their skis demanding sessions his resignation i would like i would love sessions to resign because he's terrible uh, but uh he didn't commit perjury he said a, a sentence that wasn't true in an answer to a question that wasn't specific and eh, that's that, that's what happened so uh yeah i can tell you that
2: by the way the the i have i have secret magic sources uh, when you're inside of government one it, it's a big even whether you're the president or you're a lowly, a lowly, lowly, you know, CIA analyst as yours truly was, uh, you, you never, you never can play the in any kind of a policy discussion or anything at all in any professional setting. You're not allowed to play the. Well, I know more than you about that subject, so I'm right because I have access to. You know, I remember I was told once more or less, you know, that's the kind of thing where if if you say it in a civilian agency meeting, your superior is going to. Uh, absolutely, take you to the woodshed afterwards. Even if technically speaking you're right, you just never allowed. You're never allowed to say that. Like, well, I have information you don't have. And like, if you say it to anybody in the military, well, sir, I have a TS clear, and they're going to punch you, and everyone's going to say they were right. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, uh, okay, not not a card to play. Never pull the. Well, I have. And with Trump on this stuff, it's like, yeah, it, if he had this stuff, I would I would assume he would tell us. Um, but I do think that you, uh, to be fair, Mister Welch, there were a lot of reports out there about with specificity about counterintelligence investigations of Trump personnel, Rumbai, you mentioned mention in Heat Street. I don't know her deal, by the way, so what's her uh, deal real quick? She-
1: uh, it's complicated. She was a conservative uh, uh, member, I think, of the House of Lords. Could have been an MP, maybe an MP uh, in in uh, in England. She got in trouble with a bunch of different things. She's out here, the editor of Heat Street, which is kind of an in-house Murdoch Empire libertarianish rag that does a lot of uh, uh, campus outrage stories, but she's got her teeth into this one, and published in November, I think, the first uh, thing that there was a FISA court uh, approval on something, on uh, a communication that had to do with Trump world, Uh, what she, I don't think, has gotten particularly right or knowledgeable uh, is... Who was the target of that FISA court approval? Was it a Russian bank or was it actual Trump personnel? I tend to think, looking at the reporting and talking to people I know who have some clue about this stuff, that it was a, I mean, it's FISA court. It's supposed to be about foreign intelligence. So it was probably, they probably started from the Russian bank and worked backward and caught people up uh, in the web of it. So, um, but, yeah, she's, I mean, she believes that Andrew Breitbart was murdered uh, by Putin, so she's got some conspiratorial elements uh, to her. I like her. Whoa,
2: <laughs> whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Is that for realsies? She
3: thinks uh, that?
1: That's, she has tweeted that. I don't know what her interior world is like, but she has tweeted that she believes that Andrew Breitbart was murdered by Putin. She's, has, she's published this whole thing. It's, it's a, a, phena- a phenomenal rabbit hole to go down to called the Carolina Conspiracy that all talks about uh, this way that uh, uh, Russian hackers got into and, and Breitbart world people got into Anthony Weiner's email. And that's what caused James Comey to do X and Y. It's, it's, uh, it's bonkers, wow, but it's very it, it, compelling.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, it's, uh, is this a thing that I can look up online somewhere and read about the Carolina conspiracy?
1: Just Google it; you'll find it. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty insane uh, and entertaining. And, oh, I, and wow. I don't recommend believing it. Uh, but it, it, no, it, no, it, that that.
2: Yeah. But this is this is uh, interesting to hear that part of. But yeah, you know, the New York Times did have its piece out, and it didn't get any, uh, it didn't get any pushback or criticism about the surveillance of. Con- I'm assuming of conversations or communications. They said a counterintelligence investigation which usually specifies a few things, of Trump campaign aides, and they even named the aides in the article, and everybody was taking that as, you know, that's fine. Well, why was it fine then and not fine now? That, that, that would that would be the answer that I would want from, you know, everyone at, C, everyone at CNN and, and the New York Times newsroom and everywhere else is kind of like, oh, this is ridiculous, this allegation of wiretapping. And then, of course, people have brought up, well, was it a, is the FISA warrant request real or not? Uh, meanwhile, if... Trump aides were really under surveillance for either—it's either, it's either in a counterintelligence, counterespionage operation, or it's a criminal operation. Either way, if there's surveillance going on of them, that would seem to be a big deal. And yet I think people didn't, th- didn't treat it like it was a big deal because it's, well, of course. I mean, we all believe this Russia conspiracy, and I'm one of the people who doesn't believe the Russia conspiracy. So that's why I'm sort of—I sit around well, I mean- saying, okay—
1: I, I, I believe fully well that Russia was happy to muck up uh, in, in, as much as it can to get involved in the election here. What I don't believe yeah, sure. is the next 12 uh, connected dots which is that they somehow hacked the election. That's garbage. They didn't. We voted. They tallied the votes. Trump won. Fair and square. That's really the end of that story, and I, I wish people would- But,
2: but you it. but you know, and I, I think you'd agree that this is the, the, ins, the insinuation, and it's more than that sometimes. I mean, you've got Maxine Waters. You've got Nancy Pelosi. These are members of Congress who are just straight up saying Trump is part of some Russia axis, some Russia conspiracy that threw the election, and he's now- He's now effectively a Russian agent, or is a Russian agent of influence in the United States. They say stuff along those lines. I mean, they say stuff that's just that crazy. And uh, I, yeah, I know there are people there. Are, there are people in the media who believe that there that there. It's just a matter of time. We have a congressional investigation that they say has to happen. We've got to have a special process, a special prosecutor for what? Yeah,
1: I was going to ask this I'm not question sure. because I mean, I the special see. prosecutor
2: is going to find that Paul Manafort was sitting down with a bunch of you know shady looking russian fsb guys or something in a cafe in uh, you know I, I don't know in, in ukraine and he's we like yeah hack hack into hack into uh well yeah we already know he's meeting with shady people in ukraine but but it, I, they would assume I, I think or they're assuming that he has to be asking them hack into John Podesta's email account, or, yeah, let's go forward with that. I'm not even sure what they think the crime would necessarily be.
1: You know, I, it's a, uh, I'm glad that you put it that way. I, I've been on MSNBC each of the last four days. so. Uh, Ooh, I, tell us I,
2: about that. That sounds well, interesting.
1: Well, part of it has been that on air and off, I ask everybody, like, what do you think is at the end of your particular rainbow on this? Like, seriously, what do you think that they sat down and talked about that was so damning, as opposed to... Um, what seems the most likely, which is that there is a genuine alignment of interests here. You understand why Putin would favor Trump. He favors uh, Le Pen and the National Front in in, uh, in uh, France for the same reason. They've, Victor Orban and Fidesz in Hungary for the same reason. He likes. Western politicians who campaign against multilateral Western institutions in the name of nationalism—it's that—that's what he wants to do. He wants to roll back NATO and the EU and kind of this internationalist things because he sees it as a reminder and a threat against what uh, is his biggest call, reason for being alive uh, is, which is sort of a, to reconstitute the old Soviet Union or at least to act on the loss of the old uh, Soviet Union. It, that makes total sense. So um, instead of, of actually going to where that makes sense and you would understand why people would get along and and share these interests uh and it would even be reciprocal at some point people are assuming and this was the best answer that i got um in terms of what what lies underneath the conspiracy it's like well uh, maybe they told the Trump campaign that they had information that they had hacked into the Republican uh, emails as well, and that in or that they that they had better be nice and change the wording in the Republican Party platform towards Ukraine, or else those emails are going to come out. So that there's some there's some kind of threat or whip hand there. Uh, that's the most plausible by a boy which i don't think it's actually plausible uh, but that's the only one that even begins to make any kind of sense to me um, on any kind of conspiratorial front and i should say uh, the the thing that's arguing in their favor is just that we are now way beyond like rule of 3 when it comes to pattern of bizarre dissembling here between Carter Page uh especially uh, uh Jeff Sessions Michael Flynn there's a pattern here of saying x and then leak comes out proving that X is not true, and then you come back and say, "Well, actually, uh, you know, I uh, things were different than I thought." So uh, people act. Wait, like but,
2: hold, that. but hold, well, one second to, to that point, Matt, if I may. Uh, anybody yeah. who's ever been through, or, or been or been through either a law enforcement proceeding or has worked in law enforcement or dealt with uh, interrogation in, in an intelligence capacity will tell you that a big part of uh, you know a big part of getting certain answers is creating the the pressure in the environment that you sit somebody down and you 're telling them well you know you 're going to tell us this or or else the following is going to happen to you or you 're going to answer questions about this very sensitive topic or this area where you know you could be in jeopardy and you keep going and going and going until you get somebody to say something wrong and then law enforcement actually oftentimes loves to just get somebody on the wrong statement as we know and and go from there. I, the the russia conspiracy has been pushed from the day really or the days after the election uh and when i mean the conspiracy i don't mean the hacking is not a conspiracy to me that i i can buy that you can buy that that's fine but that there was some trump collusion active uh active participation from the trump side in active measures they've been pushing the story so much so i feel like when somebody like Flynn is being asked about this his you know gut reaction would be to say no you know i i didn't i, I didn't talk to the you know, I didn't do anything. I didn't talk to the Russian ambassador. We didn't talk about that thing because he's trying to avoid it, not because there's some great... You know, I, I just think it's much less interesting than people want to believe it is. I, I think it's just human nature when you realize that something has been blown up into a big issue, you know, you don't want to talk about it. I mean, I think I, of you I, know, Scooter Libby with the Valerie Plame thing. He didn't do anything wrong, but they got they were able to get him on a, on a technicality of a statement that he made about who said what to whom at some point. And maybe he made it because... He thought he could get, you know, he was trying to just escape the perjury trap and fell into it. But that was all they got him on. I feel like they're turning up the pressure on all these different Trump people. And, yeah, some, I mean, the Jeff Sessions thing, was, was he really, w- w- yeah, I, I understand what he said wasn't wise in the context of all the stuff that's going on. But do you think he was really trying to lie?
1: Uh, I, look, he said the sentence, I didn't have communications with the Russians. Uh, that sentence is an untrue sentence. Now, he said it, it's, I don't think it's perjury. I think he, you know, it was in response to kind of a blizzard of, of, of a question that included brand new information that he hadn't processed before and other things like that. Uh, I mean, I agree with you in terms of the pressure and the relentlessness of it, um, but still, I think the, the incidence of, of this. Uh, is enough to say that there's something, um, just there's just something odd, not that something that proves anything, but that it's odd. For instance, uh, I mean, the, the Democrats probably spent, during the confirmation hearings at least, uh, equal time, if not more time, grilling the various candidates in all cabinet agencies about things having to do with race or racism, things like that. And yet that didn't really produce a whole lot of, of you know, uh, uh, fist-thumping, outrage, potential, like, oh, a misremembered kind of things. It's only the Russia stuff, and it's a lot of people. So that's screwy, and I want an explanation for that. Uh, but like you, I don't really think that there is a there there. I mean, I could be a lack of imagination on my part. Part of me wants to believe it, as you know. I, if, I probably hate Vladimir Putin even more than you do. We can have a hate-off uh, with him. And, uh, and I think that America has completely abdicated its intelligence duties in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and Central Europe, in particular, and that and I've been talking about that with you and and you as well for the last seven years. I mean, this is this has been a thing. Um, so, like, I'm I'm I should be in conditions ready to believe all this, and I just don't. Like, I I think I think the underlying behavior, unless something big comes over the transom, is pretty Mickey Mouse stuff. So it's this bizarre world thing that we're in right now.
2: Yeah, uh, I think that's I think that's all fair. I just. Also, I, I am amazed, and, and this is the last thing I'll we'll have to, well, actually, now we got another minute or two, uh, that there's such a, there, how much time do I have? A 30, okay, all right, sorry. Um, so uh, I've got people in the media that believe this international conspiracy and then trump says this thing about wiretapping and all of a sudden it's well he he's a crazy person that's that's a conspiracy with no evidence and and a lot of people look at them say let's assume even that that's entirely true and i think it it probably is true that you know well it's certainly true what he tweeted out isn't word for word accurate but even if the whole the underlying sentiment of, of, of wasn't accurate uh, they believe the Russia conspiracy, and I'm still waiting for any actual evidence that that is true, other than just it looks it looks shady. I agree there's some weird stuff going on here, though. Matt Welch, everybody, is editor-at-large of there Reason you. Magazine. He is out there rocking and rolling. Uh, Matt, come hang out with us on the night show soon. How about that? Love to. I'm here for All right, you. Yeah, my man. Great great to talk to you. We'll do it soon. And, uh, Team Buck, we got to hit a quick break. I'll be right back.
0: The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at TheBlaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show only the blaze radio network
2: i've read a little bit more about this uh this incident at at middlebury college which of course reminds me very much it's a very similar school i've never been there but similar size and it's part of the same athletic conference and all that same general region of the country i'm sure it's average class is pretty indistinguishable from the classes i took at amherst in terms of the people in it and the general ethos and uh and vibe, uh, and I didn't know that the woman, I mean, the woman who was injured, leave. So Charles Murray, who we've actually had on the show before, uh, he wrote the Bell Curve, which uh, dove into data on IQ and, and just completely set the left uh, with set the left alight with fury. I mean, they were they were really outraged about that one. Um, they invited him up to uh, Middlebury. I think, uh, yeah, I've told you about this. They invited him up to Middlebury. He's supposed to speak. And there, there is this change. I mean, it reminds me, the description of what was happening when he was supposed to talk reminds me quite a lot of what I dealt with, or what I, what I saw, I should say, when Justice Scalia spoke at Amherst. You've got a sitting Supreme Court justice who is going to speak at Amherst College, and students in the, uh, show up in the audience, and they're, all, they're wearing black armbands, and some are standing with their back, they stand and turn with their backs to him as some show of defiance. I mean, he's a sitting Supreme Court justice, deigning to uh, hang out at, our, at my tiny little liberal arts college while I was a student there. The entire political science department boycott his speech, um, with the exception of my advisor and maybe one or two other professors. Uh, but they, they they openly signed his letters and they boycott his speech because he's such a vile and hateful person. His his daughter was a student there. It was a year or two ahead of me. It was actually a very nice girl. I liked her and and they acted like complete you know the people the students just acted like total lunatics he gave a good speech though and people did get to hear it whether they liked it or not with charles murray of at middlebury he didn't even get to give the speech this is what has changed now on campuses you can be invited to speak on campus cleared by the administration you go to speak and then a bunch of students the heckler's video uh, video the heckler's veto is alive and well and they'll stop you from being able to have your say And then they'll even assault you afterwards. They assaulted a woman escorting Charles Murray to a car who was a professor who was there to give a counterpoint to his ideas. These kids are such babyish little morons that they hurt the professor who's specifically playing the role of introducing this guy and then is going to counterpoint him. They uh, injured her neck. She had to wear a neck brace after this. Well done, progressives, you
1: jerks. The Buck Sexton Show, on the
3: Blaze Radio Network.
1: The Buck Sexton Show.
2: All right, everybody, we're joined by James Kirchick. He's a fellow at the Foreign Policy, uh, Policy Initiative and the author of the brand-new book. It's out today, in fact. The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age on Amazon.com, for those of you who want to go check it out, and you should. James, thanks for calling us. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right, if you would, please. we got we got plenty of time, so take your time. Walk us through a bit of the thesis of the book, and then we'll get into some of the details and the arguments you make.
3: Well, I guess I'd say that uh, Europe is really facing the biggest crisis collectively uh, since the Cold War, and it's on multiple fronts. It's the threat from Russia, which is you know, still waging a war in Ukraine and obviously increasing its military uh, spending in ways we haven't seen in a very long time. It's the disintegration of the European Union, which uh, has begun already with, with Brexit. Uh, it's the rise of nationalism and populism uh, on the far right, but also the far left. It's Islamism um, and the increase of Islamic terrorist attacks and the rise of ISIS in Europe uh, and the and the also concomitant rise of anti-Semitism, um, which is obviously one of the probably the worst uh, tradition in, in European history. Um, and an ongoing economic crisis. You know, almost ten years now after the the crash of 2008, uh, the eurozone has barely any growth. Um, so these are all. Uh, Crises that I think combined are um, representing a, a really difficult uh, period in European history and something that I think Americans uh, should should care about.
2: Now, by the way, the economy, we were told uh, for a while that the, the EU, that uh, because Greece obviously was in terrible shape, and then it was just a matter of time before uh, Spain and, and then Italy would follow and then the dominoes would fall, and we were told this a lot, and this could be the end of the Eurozone Th- that didn't happen, but they didn't exactly fix everything either, right? What did happen?
3: Yeah, it's kind of stagnant. You know, I mean, Greece and uh, so Spain and Italy have obviously not gone the way of Greece yet, but they still have very high youth unemployment. You know, in a country like Spain, I think it's like, you know, 40 percent, something really high. Um, so it's not getting better. It's not exactly getting worse in those places, but it's not getting better. And, you know, obviously the longer these sorts of problems persist, you know, the more attractive... Um, the demagogues, in my book subtitle, be, be, become. I think their their message starts to resonate more um, in in times of economic uncertainty.
2: Who are the main figures in this populist nationalism that you talk about in the book?
3: Well, they really uh, run the gamut. I mean, I would uh, you know start with a figure like Viktor Orban, who's the prime minister of Hungary, um, who has come out publicly in favor of what he calls a liberal democracy. And that was back in 2014, you know, before anyone had heard of Donald Trump running for president. Um, but then also, you know, on the left, I would point to the Syriza party in Greece. Um, and these are basically, you know, neo-Marxists, um, not sort of liberals in the classical sense of the term, to say the least. Um, Marine Le Pen in France, the National Front. Uh, Geert Wilders, who's the leader of... Um, Who's, who's running for prime minister in in Holland next week, and they're having big elections there. Um, so there's there's lots of figures, but those are the mains. When I the main one, uh, I would say, and I should also add to that list, um, uh, Nigel Farage, who's the former leader of the United Kingdom Independence Party, um, who I would also put in that in that category of, of, of being a nationalist.
2: No, I see here in the Amazon description of the book. You talk about this, the shallow, this is a quote from an excerpt here, or not an yeah. excerpt from the book, but from the description yeah. on Amazon. A shallow disingenuousness of the leaders who pushed for Brexit. So why why were they disingenuous and, and shallow?
3: I think a lot of the promises that they were making were not uh, uh, in accordance with the facts. I mean, you often heard people talk about the euro and why that was bad for Britain. But I mean, Britain is not in the euro. Um, and so it was not... Being held responsible for what was going on in Greece, British taxpayers were not having to bail out, you know, Greece in the way that Germans were. But this argument was constantly being put forth, um, as was an argument several months before the Brexit vote that Britain would be swarmed with Turks because Turkey was imminently about to join the European Union, which is just completely not true. I mean, for the 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 prospect of Turkey joining the EU is so far off in the future and, and unlikely to ever happen, really, because you need all all the members of the EU have to agree to a new member joining. And you already had several countries that had made it it pretty clear that Turkey was not going to join. Um, And then there was a a pretty infamous promise that was made by leaders of the Brexit campaign that if Britain got out of the EU, they'd be able to spend something like 350 million more pounds per week on their national health service. And then then immediately after the vote happened, they basically came out and said, yes, this, this number was completely made up and exaggerated. So there was just a lot of, I think, false information going on. Also, the, the, uh, the number of laws that um, Britain has that are basically dictated or come out of Brussels, out of the EU parliament, it's really only something like 12 or 13 percent. But you had people like Farage again insisting that it was above 60 or even 70 percent. So there was just a lot of you know, bad information that was being put out there. And if you had looked at the you know, the British media, was so Eurosceptic to begin with. Um, particularly in the in the tabloid media for for decades, it sort of created this environment where I think any accusation that you made about you know Europe would be believed, no matter how far fetched or inaccurate.
2: Now, uh, how much of the cultural impact of the multicultural ethic uh, and and the, the diversity? Uh, the, the diversity ideology that we see in this country, but in Europe and in, in some cases in some of the northern Europe, you know, European yeah. countries in particular, it's taken on a an almost religious zeal. Yeah. Uh, the you know, multiculturalism is our is our strength. And how much of what you see happening here on the political side do you think is, and at some level, a popular revolt against what is a and for some people a clearly dubious policy especially when you yeah, look at some think, of the countries the smaller countries that have brought in go, go ahead
3: yeah and no, that's actually an excellent point and i and i raised this you know about 2 weeks ago when this whole thing with sweden came up with donald trump and you know he made the point not very well he was he was confused people thought he was making up a terrorist attack when really what he was talking about was something he had seen on fox news and then you know the great and the good they all kind of mocked donald trump and they tried to portray Sweden as this you know, wonderful, multicultural utopia, um, and how dare anyone you know, say otherwise. And um, you know, I think the truth was kind of somewhere in the middle. I mean, it wasn't as bad as I think Trump was trying to portray it as, but it's clearly not this you know, social democratic paradise. And yeah, well, there, and there were there
2: were riots in a in a Muslim majority suburb exactly. 24 yeah. hours after he made the comment, where they were lighting precisely. police cars on fire, or at least cars on fire. I think they yeah, attacked yeah, police officers too. That had too.
3: happened in that same yeah. neighborhood, Rinkby, before, um, and it's called a no-go zone. And I remember, you know, about two years ago, I think after the attacks in France, when that term was used, people got very angry in France. I think I think the mayor of Paris even threatened to sue Fox News. Yeah, um, but, yeah. I mean, but, the, but these do exist. I mean, they they do exist, and they're um, they are in certain areas of France, certainly in Sweden. Um, there's actually a friend of mine who's a Swedish journalist who did an interview a couple days ago with um, the head of the ambulance union. Uh, he's an ambulance worker, a paramedic. And they told her, you know, we can't go into certain neighborhoods without armed security, without, without police officers guarding us. It's not safe. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to make, make the point that Donald Trump, makes. I think he goes a little bit too far. Um But I also think that the kind of utopian vision that is that is given of places like Sweden is not true, and what 's interesting is that you know Chatham House, which is a very respected British think tank, they did a survey of European public opinion and they found that in eight out of ten European countries, a majority of Europeans in those countries supported banning all Muslim immigration now, does that sound does that sound familiar to you that 's exactly the policy that Donald Trump proposed to great controversy and people you know, calling him a fascist and whatnot, particularly in Europe. And then it comes out that majorities of actual European citizens uh, uh, agree with him. And I think it just shows you the, you know, the gap in the public opinion versus the elite opinion when it comes oh, to yeah. of, Im- of Im- immigration and national security and, and identity. And well, whatnot. this is the and great I, unspoken. No, not... yeah. Go ahead, James. Go ahead. I was going to
2: say that this, this is the great unspoken. I mean, this is an important part of all this because this is the big unspoken point of debate, which is that whenever we talk about in this country uh, the Trump policy about immigration and uh, banning temporarily, or, you know, without getting into the details yeah. and the specific fights over the language and everything else about the immigration executive order, uh, I think there are a lot of people who see it as the start of also pushing back against or or preventing, rather, not, not even pushing back, it's uh, mass Muslim migration because they right. culturally don't want it. It's not just a security yeah. concern. We don't talk about it here, but in Europe they are having that discussion. As you point out, that's mainstream in Europe. They they just don't exactly. want to be full of Muslim immigrants in some of these countries. Right. That's and, the, that's right. the sentiment.
3: This is, this is another, yeah, that, that that's a good point. And this is another reason why I thought it, it was sort of silly for Trump to bring up Sweden as, as a warning to America because... You know, in America, we're blessed. We have oceans on either side. I mean, the, the the prospect of mass Muslim immigration coming to America and the numbers that they've seen in Europe over the past, you know, two years—it's impossible. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Um, and, and, and so, I thought it was kind of, you know, inappropriate for him to even bring this up. It's not something that Americans need to worry about. Um, but going, you know, but going back to the Europe question, I think yeah, these are legitimate concerns, and we should be able to talk about them at least without someone, you know, automatically being accused of being a racist. And obviously there are some people who are racist and bigots and they should be called out for it. But when you, but I mean, I'll just be out front. You know, I don't support personally banning all immigration from Muslim countries, but I don't want to see those people like Geert Wilders are on the far right. I don't want to see them come to power politically. And I think the best way to kind of remove the potency from their arguments is to engage on these issues, to actually discuss them in an honest and respectful way um because if you don't do that if you just if you just ignore the problems and you just you know call anyone who disagrees with you a racist or a bigot like they do in Sweden I mean the Sweden Democrats which is a far right party that that um, really started as a neo-Nazi party they're the second most popular party in Sweden and I think that's
0: because right, well, no I, one I, but else... I think
2: the normal Swedish people I'm guessing cuz I've seen this in other European contexts they know that if you ask the average mayor of a large city, representative in the parliament or what have you, you know, the average, not, I mean, obviously there are some far right parties and some anti-immigrant parties that have, that have gotten a lot more powerful. But if you said, even in a small country like the Netherlands, well, what if, what if we were going to let in a half a million refugees next year? We have a total population of what, 10 million people. We're going to let in a half a million refugees next year because we should really take this diversity stuff to the next level and we should be welcoming. Would you be okay with that? A lot of them would say yes. And a lot of people I think realize that's a problem. (laughs) They have an issue with that.
3: Some of them would say yes, but I mean, I think um, a lot of them would say no. But I think the policy-
2: Well, well now, I think a lot of them now would have said no, but that's because of what's yeah. been happening, yeah.
3: Sure, sure. But I think, like, if you look at Sweden, there was this sort of consensus, this political elite, you know, on the center right and the center left. They basically had the same immigration policy, and anyone who questioned it was, you know, was, was castigated. And I think what they thought was, well, if we just ignore this issue and treat anyone who disagrees with us as being, you know, out of bounds... Then it'll just go away. The concerns about it will just go away. And what happened was the opposite. And is that you see all these people there now because no one else will talk about something like immigration and national identity. All those people who are concerned about it, they're supporting the far right because the responsible political leaders in the center, you know, did not give them an avenue, did not give them a, a place where they could, um, you know, express their their political views. And so I think you're really seeing the negative consequences of this kind of. You know, um, overly politically correct, uh, multicultural you know worldview is, is having co- the completely opposite effects that that the people who have been promoting it intended.
2: Well, James, I'm having a lot of fun talking to you about the the thesis of your book and the things that you you touch on here. So I can uh, tell everybody listening definitely check it out. James Kirchick is the author. He also writes for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the book is The End of Europe: Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. It's on Amazon.com right now. James, really appreciate the time and the conversation today. Uh, Come back soon.
3: Thanks.
0: Anytime. Uh, Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. Buck Buck Sexton, dispensing the truth.
3: On the Blaze Radio Network.
0: This is the Buck Sexton Show.
2: All right, team, welcome back. You know, I'm I'm going to be talking about this more tonight on the on the night show, uh, six to 9 Eastern, Buck Sexton with America Now. Uh, but I, I just have got to say to you, the so far, what I'm seeing with the health care bill, uh, uh, looking it over, this is not what we've been waiting all of this time for. This is not uh, <laughs> this is not what I've you know we we were told, and let's just let's just keep it real here. Let's keep it a hundred percent real. We were told that Obamacare was a constitution destroying uh healthcare care ruining uh, tax riddled anti freedom monstrosity, and we were told that for years and and I by the way, I, I do think that that's true. I'm not saying that that is not true, but we were told all of that, and then uh We're now being told, well, there are some parts of it that are that are pretty good. We're going to keep some of those and we don't want to take some of the other parts of it that aren't so bad and just throw those out. And yeah, okay, it's a phased process. I see the GOP saying that now. It's a phased process. Well, they should probably let us know that before we see the House GOP bill. And this is now supposed to be reflective of all these efforts for all of this time, Uh, these efforts to get something down on paper that we can all vote for that, or we can all support. I mean, we don't get to vote. Well, we get to vote for the people who vote for it. Uh, I'm not seeing how, if I lost my job today, I'm not seeing how I'd be able to, or if I left, I could buy a healthcare plan that I actually want that would cover my needs. That's reasonable. That has good doctor networks that no, I'm not, I'm not seeing that there's an, there's instead of subsidies, there's tax credits, Uh, this is not repeal and replace so much as it is, you know, shift and adjust. Uh, And that's not what we were told we were going to get here. Now, I know that it's still early and that we got to wait and they're saying there are phases, but it's not like we haven't been waiting for a while. This law is six years old, everybody, seven years old now. So I would like to know what's going on here. All right, join me tonight on Buck Sacks of America Now. listen to the iHeartRadio app. And uh, until then, my friends, Shields High.
1: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.